This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and thank you for joining us on the program today. Our first segment of today's episode looks at a guide to staying safe, or at least staying alive, in one of the most dangerous countries on earth. The country in question is South Africa, and trumpet writer Rafaro Manyapa will tell us how to navigate through this nation that is growing more dangerous by the month. The next segment today is about something that comes up for most of us on a daily or at least a weekly basis, and that is being able to buy and sell, exchanging money for goods and services, the microeconomics of living in the modern world. And it's about how our ability to buy and sell is not nearly as sure as we may think it is. In fact, that ability is under increasing threat, which we'll hear about in a report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. And then the third segment, we'll take a look at the radical Islamist regime Hamas and how the group's days in power in Gaza may be numbered. We'll hear all about that in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. And then our last word today takes a look at a method for good living that is applicable to us all. So that'll be at the end of the program, and we'll begin now examining how to navigate the perils of South Africa in this report from Rafaro Manyapa. Those are the sounds and words of politics in South Africa. Those are the words of murder and death. Run, run as hard as you can, you revolutionary fighters. Shoot to kill, slaughter them like you would an animal. Kill the boer, kill the farmer. This popular apartheid-era chant is being successfully resurrected by the incendiary Julius Malema. At a rally for his political party at the end of July, over a 100,000 of his supporters filled a stadium in Johannesburg, South Africa, and feverishly echoed the chant. When pressed on the lyrics, Malema and his supporters simply argued that they aren't to be taken literally. The matter even went to court, and a judge ruled in his favor, saying that there's no proof that the lyrics in the song could reasonably be construed to demonstrate a clear intention to harm or incite to harm and propagate hatred. And yet, many black South Africans are taking up the call. They are killing white farmers. There were 77 farm attacks in just the first three months of the year. 11 farmers or their relatives were killed. Three have been killed just in the two weeks since Malema's July 29 rally. Dozens more have been tied up, shot, beaten, and even tortured. And it's easy to assume that it's big, strong farmers who are being targeted. But the perpetrators are more cowardly than that. 
52% of the victims are over 60 years old. One of them was 89-year-old Elizabeth Lee, and she was bludgeoned to death with a chair by a 15-year-old. South Africa now ranks in the bottom 20 of the Institute of Economics and Peace's Security Index. This places it just one place ahead of Ukraine, a nation which has literally been at war with Russia for a year and a half. People like Julius Malema argue that the song represents hatred against institutional racism and not any specific people. And yet specific people are being targeted and attacked almost every day. South Africa is more dangerous today than it was a year ago, dropping an incredibly low bar, even lower. Merely taking a wrong turn can swiftly transform into a deadly encounter. On August 10, The Telegraph reported that a British orthopedic surgeon was driving from the Cape Town airport with his wife and child when he took a wrong turn. South African police had been impounding illegal minibus taxis in this town and violent strikes broke out as a result. This unsuspecting British tourist drove right into the chaos and he was shot in the head right in front of his family and the violent riots continued. Being in South Africa requires near constant hypervigilance. There are safe areas and suburbs, but it's also far too easy to stumble into an explosive environment. To be safe in South Africa, if you want to remain completely safe, you can't be white, you can never make any wrong turns, you have to be wary of any vehicle driving behind you for longer than five minutes, you have to keep all valuables stowed out of sight, especially at traffic lights and stop signs, and you have to be ready to make a quick getaway in your vehicle at any given moment. But even all of that can never be enough. That's because just about everyone in South Africa, white, black, Indian, everyone is suffering. Taxes are sky high, the government is incompetent, unemployment is rampant, power cuts are a normal part of life. Millions of South Africans live in shanty towns and slums. They are angry and they are tired. They are plagued by violence, disease, filth, poverty, and hunger. And they are told that it is all because of persistent and institutional racism. South Africa isn't yet a war zone, and white genocide isn't a full-blown reality yet. The incendiary words are still only just words, but both black and white South Africans are suffering from the nation's rapid descent from one of the most prosperous countries in the world to what it is today. And when all those angry, hungry, poor, frustrated South Africans finally snap, who else would they attack first as they chant about killing the white farmers? Very soon, the only recourse South Africans will have is to say their prayers.
as the late Herbert W. Armstrong proved in his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, the Dutch, British, and Irish South Africans are also descendants of the nation of Israel, a nation with a special relationship with God. Sadly, these South Africans have forgotten God. They gave away their God-given birthright. They gave South Africa up to communism and its consequent policies. And the fruits are clear. With each passing day, surviving in South Africa is a much more difficult challenge. And everything happening in South Africa is a harbinger of what is coming on the other descendants of Israel, particularly America and Britain. Here's what we write in our booklet, South Africa in Prophecy. We are witnessing the fall of South Africa as a prelude to the accelerating descent of the United States and of the once great British company of nations. South Africa is the first major domino to fall in what will become a free fall into slavery of those once mightiest nations on earth. Very soon, just as in South Africa, trying to survive in these nations will be nearly impossible. The only solution is to remember God, to turn to him and seek him in prayer. South Africa's troubles will not fizzle out. They are going to get worse and they are coming to America and Britain. The power cuts, the racist chants, the riots, the violence, the hunger, and the anger. These are going to continue to build. They will affect everyone, whether you are white or black, whether you make a wrong turn or not. The only solution is to say your prayers. Turn to God. That is the only way to survive. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Thank you for joining us today. Our next segment is about our ability to buy and sell. It's something most of us take for granted, but this is actually something that more and more national governments are turning the screws on and attaching all kinds of strings and conditions to. And it means that our ability to buy and sell is in danger, as we'll hear about now in this report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. Without a bank account, you become a non-person, said United Kingdom politician and Brexit leader Nigel Farage. He speaks from experience. When his bank account closed in June, he didn't know why. 
what everyone suspected was later verified. His account was shut down for political reasons. On June 29th, he wrote on Twitter, If they can do it to me, they can do it to you too. Here's what he said in his video message that day. I have been with the same banking group since 1980. I've had my personal accounts with them since that date and my business accounts right through the 1990s what I worked in the city of London and in recent years too. I'm with one of the subsidiaries of this big banking group, one with a very prestigious name, but I won't name them just yet. I got a phone call a couple of months ago to say, we are closing your accounts. I asked why, no reason was given. I was told a letter would come which would explain everything. The letter came through and simply said, we are closing your accounts. We want to finish it all by a date, uh, which is around about now. I didn't quite know what to make of it. I complained. Uh, I emailed the chairman. Uh, a lackey phoned me uh, to say that it was a commercial decision, which I have to say, I don't believe for a single moment. So I thought, well, there we are. I'll have to go and find a different bank. I've been to six. Uh, no, seven banks, actually, um, asked them all, could I have a personal and a business account? And the answer has been no in every single case. He is not the only one. On July 26th, the Epic Times reported that JP Morgan Chase shut down accounts for companies owned by COVID-19 vaccine critic Dr. Joseph McCullough. This harkens back to the Canadian government's response to the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa last year. But this trend is not limited to liberal Western governments. Bank accounts or assets of government critics around the world are regularly frozen. It has happened in Uganda, Belarus, Russia, China, Hong Kong, India, Iran, Turkey and many other countries. Governments have even seized protesters' money You may not need to oppose the government to lose your business. In France, companies lose necessary financing if they don't reach the climate goals of the government. Think about all the things you may do that your particular government may not like. Supporting a particular organization, a protest or a subscription to a magazine. Sanctions and asset freezing can restrict one's ability to engage in business and the indication is this practice may become all too common. But it may not even take shutting down your account to limit your ability to engage in business. Many factors go into a bank's assessment of someone's creditworthiness, determining if a person can get a credit card, a mortgage or a loan. It is mostly based on a person's financial history, but some lenders also run a background check before giving out a mortgage. As people are finding out, the list can easily be expanded. For example, a bank could say a person is a financial risk because he does not support the LGBTQ movement, which limits his job opportunities in the future. The same could be true for someone who hasn't taken the COVID vaccine or drives a gasoline-powered car. By outlawing those things, the government could ruin a person's creditworthiness. 
The more complex government policies become, the more complex are the considerations for giving out a loan. To check a business's compliance with diversity employment, climate change regulations and other liberal trends, you may need the help of artificial intelligence. The European Union drafted a law that regulates just that. The law reads, AI systems used to evaluate the credit score or credit worthiness of natural persons should be classified as high-risk AI systems. Since they determine those persons' access to financial resources or essential services, such as housing, electricity, and telecommunication services, end of quote. High risk means it will come under strict government scrutiny. They further write, AI systems used for this purpose may lead to discrimination of persons or groups and perpetuate historical patterns of discrimination, for example, based on racial or ethnic origins, disabilities, age, sexual orientation, or create new forms of discriminatory impacts, end of quote. The EU wants to ensure that non-minority groups are discriminated against by AI systems that could limit their ability to live a normal life. But what if a Chinese-style social credit system is developed that evaluates your trustworthiness based on your tolerance toward the liberal norms of our Western world? What if this system determines if you are allowed to have a bank account? AI could search someone's social media accounts and determine if the person might get into trouble with the government in the future. It could analyze any communication, financial activity or other records the government allows access to. Instead of looking at a past criminal record, it could predict future potential criminal records. It could evaluate complex data and draw conclusions hard for human beings to understand. What if the government designs the AI and demands that banks use it? The bank may not understand why a customer was denied access to its financial service. If you know such a system exists, you would avoid criticizing the government. The possibilities of government overreach are endless. This brings a particular biblical prophecy to life. As the late Herbert W. Armstrong explained in Who or What is the Prophetic Beast? Revelation 17 depicts the union between a powerful government and a church, represented by a woman riding a beast. This church-state combine is the Holy Roman Empire in history, but it's also prophesied to rise one more. Revelation 13 reveals what this empire has done and will do in the near future. Verses 15 to 17 read, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship, the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, 
save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. About A.D. 363, the Council of Laodicea decreed, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, resting rather on Sunday. But if any be found to be Judaizing, let them be declared anathema from Christ. End of quote. The church decreed it and the state enforced it. Those who didn't obey could no longer engage in business, no longer buy and sell. The Bible reveals it will be the same in the end time. Governments have more power than ever to force such a decree. You need to understand what the mark of the beast is. Those who reject his mark are protected by God. To learn more, read. Which day is the Christian Sabbath? Thanks very much for sticking with us through this episode of Trumpet Hour. We appreciate you spending some of your time with us today. And our next segment here is about Hamas, the radical Islamist regime that rules in the Gaza Strip. But the group's days in power may be numbered, as we'll hear about now from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Those chants by angry demonstrators could be in Baghdad, Beirut, or any other major Middle Eastern city. But these protests happened at a unique place, one that usually doesn't see much unrest from the average person on the street. Much of the world's coverage of the Middle East these days focuses on the anti-government protests in Israel. But what some may not realize is that Israel's neighbor to the southwest has simmering tensions of its own. Twice in recent weeks, relatively large-scale protests took place in Gaza, the Palestinian exclave on the Mediterranean ruled by terror group Hamas. While on a much smaller scale than the Israeli protests, these rare pushbacks against Hamas could signal a changing attitude on the streets. On July 30th and August 4th, people took to the streets in Gaza protesting under the slogan, We Want to Live. Because of Gaza's unique political circumstances, estimates of the protests' sizes vary from hundreds to thousands, but their cause is definitely resonating with a large enough segment of Gaza's population. Now, the reasons for the protests include power outages, and Gaza's deplorable economic conditions. The United Nations estimated Gaza's poverty rate in 2022 to stand at 65%, while the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics 
estimates youth unemployment in Gaza to be at an astounding 74%. Rami Herzala, a We Want to Live organizer, told media, quote, Our demands are so basic. We have the right to live in dignity, the right to learn for everyone, the right to travel without paying for costly intelligence coordination, the right to work, to have enough electricity, and the right to freedom of speech, end quote. The average Gazan resonates with comments like those from Herzala. Protesters shouted, Hamas, leave us be, and the people want the fall of the regime. Some burned Hamas flags, and some even called for complete regime change among the whole of the Palestinian territories. Some shouted, Abbas and Haniye, the people are the victims. Ismail Haniyeh is the leader of Hamas, and Mahmoud Abbas is the president of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank from the relatively more moderate Fatah party. That some want both leaders gone suggests many Gazans want a complete reset of Palestinian politics. Now, compared to the protests in neighboring Israel, those in Gaza may seem minor. Israel saw tens if not hundreds of thousands take to the streets for months There weren't nearly as many people on the streets in Gaza, and Hamas's police dispersed the gatherings rapidly. Movement representatives called for a third protest on August 7th, which never materialized due to a heavy police presence established beforehand. But there is a reason the protests appeared more minor. Hamas is a radical Islamist regime with a reputation for punishing critics severely, and people stand up against Hamas at their own peril. The last time protests like these happened was in 2019. Many journalists trying to cover the current protests have been attacked and detained. But despite their small size, the protests are a big deal for Gazan society. It appears Gaza's economic crisis is becoming unbearable for enough people. But Hamas isn't only getting pressure from people on the street. There are signs of political tensions as well. On July 18th, Hamas-controlled police stormed Al-Adwa Mosque in Rafah, a city on the Egyptian border. They arrested Sheikh Yahya Mansour. Mansour claimed that Hamas wanted to kill me. He said they beat me with chairs and objects that were in the mosque, and I miraculously survived. Mansour was no random victim. He is a religious leader associated with Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ, a rival Islamist terror group operating in Gaza. Now, PIJ and Hamas compete for influence, but also cooperate with each other in wars against Israel. The two fought a war together against Israel in 2021, and since then, PIJ has had its own skirmishes against Israel without Hamas, but evidently with Hamas's blessing. And even during relative quote-unquote peacetime, the two groups cooperate through the so-called Joint Operations Room, a collaborative military strategy forum. Both Hamas and PIJ also get millions of dollars worth of funding from Iran. Both groups have the same boss and the same enemy. And furthermore, PIJ's existence also has a practical use for Hamas. When war between PIJ and Israel breaks out, Israel still gets attacked, but Hamas 
doesn't use any of its resources, and Hamas gets none of the blame in the media. Hamas, then, has every reason to keep PIJ afloat. Unless PIJ is becoming a political threat. Anonymous Gazan sources told Tazpit Press Service that the Rafa raid was part of a broader strategy for Hamas to take control of PIJ within Gaza. PIJ's reaction to the raid suggests it is getting fed up with Hamas's rule. Here is a statement they released, quote, Stealing, drug trafficking, hoarding electricity, and all the crises in Gaza are not enough for Hamas. They also want to kill the military arm of the Islamic Jihad that was on the battlefield for three rounds with the claimed Israeli occupation, end quote. So, as people protest Hamas for the first time in years, a terror group with a formidable military arsenal of its own is blaming Hamas for all the crises in Gaza. This, to say the least, is not good news for Hamas. Hamas's main sponsor, Iran, is on the other side of the Middle East. While Iran can provide support through smugglers' routes and other roundabout methods, if Gaza were to break out an open rebellion, the on-the-ground support Iran could offer Hamas would be very limited. And both Israel and Egypt, who have imposed strict blockades against Gaza, have huge incentive to prod a Hamas ousting in the event of major unrest. So if the current flare-ups turn into Gaza's own Arab Spring, Hamas's days in the government could be very numbered. Bible prophecy suggests such a regime change could happen. A prophecy in Daniel 11 verses 40 to 43 is about an end-time king of the north and a king of the south clashing in a major war. These represent two power blocks forming in our day. The context of the rest of the chapter shows this king of the north to be a rising European power. And for decades, the trumpet has identified the king of the south as a radical Islamist bloc led by Iran. Verses 42 and 43 show Iran's allies in this coming clash, which will include countries like Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. Hamas-led Gaza is an ally of Iran today, but Gaza is absent from the King of the South prophecy. Another prophecy explains why. In Psalm 83, verses 1 to 8, we see which Middle Eastern regions will be allied against Iran. Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarenes, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, the Philistines, and Tyre are all listed in this end-time alliance. Like in Daniel 11, the king of the north is also mentioned here, but under the prophetic name, Aser. But this list doesn't make too much sense without knowing the modern identities of these peoples. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry identifies them in his booklet, The King of the South. The Ishmaelites are Saudi Arabia, Moab and Ammon both refer to Jordan today. The Hagarenes are the ancient inhabitants of Syria. The Philistines, Mr. Fleury identifies as the modern Palestinian Arabs. Gebel and Tyre are Lebanon and Asser, or Assyria, refers to the ancestral peoples of modern Germany. 
and we have plenty of resources on thetrumpet.com for those who would like to learn more about that. But going back to Gaza, anciently the Philistines dwelt in the region that is Gaza today. Gaza City was one of the most important Philistine city-states, and Gaza today, while it is in diplomatic limbo, runs itself as a de facto state. At the moment, Gaza is not considered a part of the so-called moderate Arab camp, but Psalm 83 suggests this could change in the future. Mr. Fleury wrote, quote, The Philistines, the Palestinians of Gaza, and even those in the West Bank, will shift their alliance to Germany as well. Iran has led Hezbollah and the Palestinians in their terrorist activities for years. They all share some common enemies, especially America and Israel. But in some religious and political aspects, their views differ. This could cause Hezbollah and the Palestinians to ally themselves with Germany. There may soon be some significant power shifts in Gaza. End quote. Time will tell if a revolution will happen in Gaza. But until then, to understand what Bible prophecy has to say about Palestinian and Middle Eastern news, please request a free copy of The King of the South at thetrumpet.com. Well, today is August 16th of 2023, and it was 15 years ago today that a man named Usain Bolt set a new world record. He is a runner, a remarkably fast sprinter from Jamaica, and on this day 15 years ago, he was in Beijing for the 2008 Summer Olympics, and he ran the 100-meter race in 9.69 seconds. That was faster than any human being had ever been recorded running that distance before. So Usain Bolt not only won the coveted 100-meter gold medal, but he set a world record. And then the very next year, on the same day, he broke his own record, this time running the 100-meter in 9.58 seconds. That was at the World Athletics Championship in Berlin. And that record still stands as the fastest known time that any person has ever run that fast for that distance. For most of us, it is inspiring to witness this kind of athletic accomplishment, this kind of just absolutely jaw-dropping performance by a once-in-a-lifetime athlete like Usain Bolt. Any kind of elite runner can be very inspiring to watch, whether it's a sprinter like Mr. Bolt or a marathon runner who goes for miles and miles. The current world record for the marathon, by the way, is two hours and one minute and nine seconds. That was set just last year by Eliud Kipchoge. And it's mind-boggling to think of someone running a mile in 4.37 seconds, which is astounding enough on its own, but then maintaining that pace for 26.2 miles. That's the pace of a two-hour, one-minute, and nine-second marathon. So it's really pushing the human body to limits that are far beyond what we used to think was even remotely possible. So it can be very inspiring to see a runner pushing himself beyond those kinds of limits and just using a steadfast mind 
to override bodily discomfort and pain. It can be a very moving showcase of the heights that the human spirit can attain. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Hebrews. He was really using running a race as a metaphor for life and telling the readers of his epistle how to live a successful life, living the give way day in and day out, learning what it really means to treat others the way that you would want to be treated and to keep it up mile after mile, day after day, month after month, year after year. That's the race that is set before us. And we have to run it without growing weary, continuing to put one foot in front of the other and keeping our heads high. To people trying to live the give way, trying to master the golden rule, Paul wrote, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Run with patience. Keep on going. In this metaphor by the Apostle Paul, it's less like the approach of Usain Bolt. You know, that kind of quick burst won't sustain a person through a lifetime. So Paul's metaphor is more like the marathon runner. And for most of us, that doesn't mean an elite marathon runner blasting along at four and a half minutes per mile. No, in Paul's metaphor, the implication is that it's a sustainable pace. And it means we have to keep on going. Even if we have to go somewhat slowly, we have to keep on running with patience the race that is set before us. Keep running and keep moving forward in that race. Well, we are now coming to the end of this episode of Trumpet Hour. Please take a look at our show notes for today's episode, either on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles that today's reports were based on and the literature that was mentioned. We'll also leave a link to the Book of Hebrews by Mr. Gerald Flurry. This booklet examines what the Apostle Paul wrote in Hebrews 12 about running with patience and much more from that epistle. So you can find that booklet and the other pieces of literature mentioned today by searching for Trumpet Hour on SoundCloud or just by navigating to thetrumpet.com. And if you have any comments or questions about today's show, the address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Many thanks to my guests today, Rafaro Manyepa, Josue Michels, and Mihailo Zekic. Thanks also to Parker Campbell and Nicholas Irwin for helping with the audio work for this episode. And thanks, of course, to you, the listener, for joining us today. Until next time, keep running with patience and keep watching your world.